Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How you doing, Dana? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Did uh, any of the names I sent to you ring a bell? Oh yeah, they all rang a bell. Actually, I mean, okay. I've uh, I've met a couple. Um, you know, I interviewed one, but uh, um, I'm aware of everybody that's on the list. <laughs> um, yeah, because who who did we mention? Marlon Brando was he on your list? Brando was on my list. That's okay. absolutely true. Yes, yeah. All right, who is the other? Uh, Cary Grant. Uh, Cary Grant, Gregory Peck whom I had the privilege of interviewing. Uh, Jose oh. Ferrer was also there. And I think Susan Hayward. Oh, wow. So you got everybody. Well, that's- Yeah, <laughs> well, they sent me a list. That's good. That's good. Academy Award Month. Oscar night is coming up. And the film detective will be showing uh, just busloads of Oscar-nominated movies. Uh, we, we have- A lot of good stuff. Yeah. We have, uh, uh, Carrie sent me a list. Uh, it, it's something, something like 60, <laughs> 60 movies that have either been uh, nominated for an Oscar or, or won an Oscar. Um, uh, one of them, w- w- which I really like, is with, with uh, Marlon Brando from 1961. It was One-Eyed Jacks. Marlon Brando was a bank robber out for revenge in One-Eyed Jacks, a penetrating and offbeat western from 1961. We'll be showing that movie. Quirky it film. Was nominated. What's that? I knew you'd like that movie. I do. And it, it was yeah. nominated for cinematography. And a lot of interesting stories behind that movie. It, it was supposedly four or five hours long at, at one point. Brand, Brando was directing. He got out yeah. of hand, over budget, got in big trouble with uh, the powers that be. They whittled it down to, to about, uh, what is it now, two and a half hours or something. It's a healthy movie. It's a long movie. It's, it's a long movie. Yeah. Yeah, but it, well, it it's is funny a good about one. him that he was always in trouble, though. And yeah. The major thing to remember about Marlon Brando was he didn't care that he was in trouble. I mean, he looked for trouble and he tried to be trouble. I mean, it, it, 
one respect, certainly one of the finest film actors that ever lived. In another respect, he was incredibly self-destructive. I mean, from the very, very beginning. I mean, my favorite story about Marlon Brando is at the beginning of his career. Now he had been doing, uh, doing this kind of on the road thing with Tallulah Bankhead, who thought he was uh, you know, a really good actor, but uh, he was terrible on stage. And you know, she said, as long as you were standing next to him, you might be able to understand what he was saying. But in the back of the theater, you could never understand it, which makes perfect sense. And Brando himself said about the theater, unless you yell, people don't think you're acting. So as you know, in his, uh, certainly in his film roles, he did, he mumbled a lot. And he was certainly, a, you know, that's not what you do in theater. You need to project a little. But it was really funny that he got, he had started doing this play and eventually back had fired him. But along comes this Tennessee Williams play that's about to hit Broadway and they need a cast. And they were trying to get John Garfield to do a streetcar named Desire. And Garfield said he didn't want to, hey, he wasn't, wasn't crazy about the play. And he certainly didn't want to be on Broadway if it was a hit for any long period of time because his film career was doing very well. So they had to, you know, they're still trying to get him. They went, they went for a long time to try and convince Garfield to take the role. Uh, they even were you know, on the verge of saying, well, look, we'll make sure that you get the film role if there's a film role made from the play. And uh, he still said no, that he wasn't going to do it. So anyway, they went looking for somebody. And Ilya Kazan, of course, who was directing, thought Brando would be right for the role. So he insisted the producers bring him in and that they audition him. So the first thing they had to do was find him. Now, he had just come off this, you know, this play that had been fired on with Tallulah Bankhead. He had no phone. He had no phone. Nobody knew where he was. And they literally had to put it out on the street with other actors to say, we need Brando to come in to audition for this new Broadway play that I think that he's perfect for. Well, Brando finally, you know, they finally got a hold of him and he came in and he auditioned for it. But the producers were still saying, hey, you know what? We still want Garfield. You know, we, if we can get John Garfield, that's the guy that we need to play this. And uh, they said that you can't get John Garfield. I'll tell you what. Suppose he auditions for Tennessee Williams and Tennessee Williams says he's right for the role. So they finally agreed, they said, okay, if Tennessee says he's right for the role, then he can play it and we'll back him and uh, Streetcar Named Desire. So then he goes to Marlon and he says, okay, Tennessee Williams was hanging out in some you know, backwoods place in those Carolinas. And they said, you have to go down and see Tennessee Williams and audition for him. And he said, I don't have any money. I have no money. So he said, Israel Kazan said, okay, look, here's the money for a bus ticket. Get down there, audition you know, as quick as you can, get down there and audition for Tennessee Williams and then get back to us, right? Or he'll get back to us. So he leaves him, Brando takes off. And the next thing Brando does is he takes the money for the bus ticket and he buys booze for a party at Maureen Stapleton's apartment. Right. He doesn't even get out of it. Now, can you imagine this? Here's a young actor that doesn't have two nickels to rub together. And he gets a, you know, a chance to star on Broadway in this Tennessee Williams play. And he, he takes the money for the bus ticket and just goes and buys booze and goes to his friend Maureen Stapleton's apartment and they have a party. And after that, it was just, you know, rosemary and sweet whiskey and just whooping and yelling.
So Ilagazan is still, I mean, you got to give him credit. He hears about it, he's angry about it, but he brings me back. He said, you have got to get down and talk to Tennessee women. This is nuts. So he, he agrees to do that. And this time he buys him the bus ticket and makes sure he gets on the bus. Well, he goes down to see Tennessee Williams in this again. He was in kind of like he had a whole bunch of artists, as he always did around him, of course. Uh, and they were staying at this cabin thing in the, in the woods. And he gets there and there's no power. So it's dark inside the cabin. And the bathroom apparently has been shut down. And everybody in there is an artist and has no idea how to fix anything. But here comes Brando, who has done about every possible odd job there is. He walks in, he fixes the lights, he fixes the John, and everybody is stunned that this man can do all these things. And he winds up and he gets the part. And of course, the rest is history. That is the part that, that made him that in the subsequent movie. But that's an extraordinary. I mean, and he continued being that self-destructive throughout his career. It's amazing. Uh, he once addressed it, uh, believe it or not, because it was hard to interview Brando because he was, you never took anything very seriously, especially later in his career. But he addressed it once by saying uh, he hated his father. Uh, his father was a drunk. His mother was a drunk too, uh, but he gave her a little more slack. And I mean, he used to pick her up off barroom floors, he said. And I, so he was always kind of looking for love. And so as a result of that, he always struck out. I mean, he got thrown out of high school for riding his motorcycle in the halls of high school. They sent him to military school to straighten him out. And, uh, and then, you know, his stories of working with driving directors crazy. And yet they kept insisting on working with him because he was such a, and a remarkable actor, incredibly remarkable actor. There's also a story about him. And he was, I love this story too, that, you know, he studied with Stella Adler. And, you know, of course, he's known that the Stanislavski method is he was the first actor, actually, that was studied under the sun, that made it big anyway, uh, as a method actor, as they call them now. And that's when you internalized everything. Everything comes in internally first and then externally. I mean, it's all. And some of the exercises that they use in order to teach this method get pretty bizarre to the, you know, unenlightened or the, you know, uninterested, I guess. Well, one time it's in one of these classes and uh, she tells everybody to, okay, uh, you're all chickens and there's going to be a nuclear bomb dropped on you. So everybody started, you know, clucking around, all, everybody, all students started clucking around frantically, you know, uh, you know, chaotically scared to death of the nuclear bomb that's coming. And Brando's just sitting there, right? <laughs> says, what are you doing? He said, I'm laying an egg. <laughs> well, whatever, there's a nuclear bomb is going to drop. And he said, I'm a chicken. I don't know anything about nuclear bombs. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of, he was always the guy that was trying to do something different, you know, always the guy that was doing everything. But it was, you know, very frustrating for a lot of actors. I mean, in a number of his movies, and, you know, Robert Duvall told me this, James Caan told me this, they loved this man. They loved working with him, and they had a great time with him because everything was a joke. I mean, these guys, you know, they had a mooning contest at The Godfather, apparently, in Godfather 1, that drove Coppola crazy. But that's the way these guys were. But they said, you literally, they would have to literally tape uh, dialogue to other actors 
so that he knew what his next line was because he refused to learn lines. You know, he would rather improvise everything, which drives everybody crazy. And it's really hard to improvise around other actors who've learned their lines. You know, if everybody's improvising, it's one thing. But if, you know, other actors have learned their lines and one guy is improvising, it's a nightmare. Crazy. He's just crazy. He was crazy. But man, was he talented. One of the one of the reasons that uh, One-Eyed Jacks went so over budget was because Brando decided that his character was drunk in a bunch of scenes. <laughs> so he went out and got drunk every day before they shot. And well, that's the method. Yeah. And yeah, yeah the method, uh, <laughs> the method to his madness. But of course, he was so drunk, he, you know, talk about not knowing his lines he couldn't perform, he was too drunk. So they had to you know, end the shooting for that day. And before you know it, um, they, they were two weeks behind schedule uh, after two days. You know, he just yeah. uh, could, could not stick to the schedule. Um, but I love that movie. It's playing on uh, Tuesday, March 1st to kick off our- That's uh, definitely your kind of movie. That's your- Definitely your kind of movie. Well, it's an interesting mix because it sort of combines what Brando was really good at, the sort of gritty, moody kind of characters, but he directed it with a real flourish. There's a lot of colorful lighting and, and, and skylines, the old west, you know, big sky country. He kind of, he was doing things nobody thought Brando could do. And at the time, the movie was not, well received it wasn't the big hit he was hoping for because he wanted to direct more often and he wanted to establish himself as a sort of independent film producer but this was not the kind of movie that could make that happen because he he wasted the budget and he ended up in debt to uh paramount and universal universal uh said we'll pay off the money that you owe but you have to act in, in four or five movies. Mm. And so he spent three or four years making those five movies for Universal. And that was not his best period of time. But over the years, a lot of directors have come forward and expressed a, a lot of admiration for One-Eyed Jacks. Uh, Coppola, Scorsese, a, a lot of the big name directors, they, yeah. they say that, uh, you know, Brando, you know, he, he hit a bullseye with that one and it went unappreciated. Um, but we'll be showing that one. And boy, our, our list of Oscar movies, we're showing uh, A Farewell to Arms, uh, Of Human Bondage, Algiers, Cyrano de Bergerac. Great um, movie. I love that movie. I was Jose actually, Ferrar. yeah, I was... Uh, a very young man, a boy, I think, when I saw that movie. And that's, I really have to say, that was one of the movies that really got me interested in movies. I mean, really uh, kind of obsessed with film. In fact, the dialogue in that movie is unbelievable. But uh, Jose Ferrer in that movie and his 
you talk about tour de force, you know, that expression that is mm -hmm. really overused, I think, in a lot of his performance in that movie is a tour de force. I mean, he just takes stage and, you know, um, just, just take and wallops everybody in that movie. Well, tell me, why are you staring at my nose? Oh, I was not staring. Does it astonish you? Why no, why no, I've been careful not to look. Oh, and why not, if you please? It disgusts you then? But no, I Does never... this color appear to you unwholesome? By no means. Or possibly you find it just a trifle large. No, small, very small, tiny, infinitesimal. What? You accuse me of absurdity? Small, my nose? Why, magnificent, my nose. You pug, you knob, you buttonhead. Know that I glory in this nose of mine. For a great nose indicates a great man. And, uh, I mean, he loved the film, always did, of course. And he used to say that Cyrano was, um, was a, a star maker for anybody. He's a very humble man, but an incredibly accomplished man as well. But uh, I did. I, I always loved Cyrano. You know, the story of the requited love, you know, and this, uh, this man who saw himself was hopelessly in love with this woman. Of course, it really was a Serena. It really was a Roxanne, which is one of the reasons why he always said that he would never. He was always told because he did a lot of television later on, Jose Ferrer, and a lot of uh, variety shows when they were big then in the 60s. And uh, he used to say that I won't do anything that disparages that character, uh, not because it, he didn't have a great sense of humor, because he did. Actually, everybody says what a great and funny man he actually was. But um, he said some reason that because Cyrano was a real person, that he wanted to, you know, the dignity of that character was very important to him. I mean, Jimmy Durante wanted him to do something, you know, the schnoz and the schnoz, you know, together, and he refused to do it. He just said, no, I, I can't do that. But he did a lot of funny stuff. I, he wrote, a, I remember as a kid, remember the Ed Sullivan show? Mm -hmm. well, you probably don't remember the Ed Sullivan show, but- Well, I, you know, I, remem I remember the legend. <laughs> Yeah, well, I I remember a little about it. I mean, I was at that old, but those are the days, of course, there were like two television stations in the market, uh, and you uh, literally, Boston anyway, and literally you watched everything with your parents. I mean, there was, you know, one TV, two television stations. So I always watched the Ed Sullivan show. I have a lot of memories. I remember the plate guy and the Ed Sullivan show. And, <laughs> yeah. And I, remember, yeah. I, I remember all that stuff. And I remember seeing him when they ride a horse. I was at Korea, riding a horse. On, uh, on the Ed Sullivan show up to Ed Sullivan. And then they kind of did this uh, Shakespearean uh, retort to each other. <laughs> it went back and forth with it, which was really strange to see Ed Sullivan doing it. But he had that centurion voice, you know, Jose Ferrer. He was an amazing man and a very, very bright guy. Did Sullivan get on the horse? No. no that would be not. something. <laughs> no, he did not. You know, Ferrer was one of those guys that you, it really appeared that he wasn't afraid of anything. I mean, it's why he was able to do those roles. I mean, remember him with the Kane Mutiny? I mean, that yeah, role the Kane Mutiny where, yeah, I mean, he's he's their lawyer. They win, and suddenly he turns or he throws a drink in front of Big Barney's face. And, you know, you want to do something about it, I'll be outside. You know? He had this, this demeanor about him. But I think as a man, as a man himself, he would never be intimidated. Uh, by uh, anyone. First Latin actor, by the way, to get an Academy Award and the first one uh, ever to uh, get a Tony as well. That's right. He he played Cyrano on stage for, you know, I, I, I think more than 500 performances. I think it was one of those shows right. that just went. And then I think he revived it 
after the movie came out years later. I think he brought it back. Uh, he did, and I think there was some teledrama that he did that I can't remember, but he won an Emmy for it. So, I mean, he's the only actor, I believe, to ever win you know, a, a Tony and an Oscar and an Emmy for a single role. That was pretty extraordinary. Yeah, and that's probably why he felt so close to the part and, and would not want to do anything to demean it. When you play a character that many times, you know, imagine that, you know, 500 nights plus, you go out there right. wearing the nose and, and reciting the poetry, um, you know, that uh, that is bound to, to cement you into the role. Yeah, he only watched the movie once, he said. And the, uh, he would never watch it again. And he said, uh, the reason was that every time he watched the movie, now it's funny because as you said, he did this hundreds of times uh, on stage, this film. And he would say, I only watched the movie once because I would think, why didn't I do this? And why didn't I do that? Why did I move over here? Why didn't I read that line like this? Why did, he said it, it was torturous uh, to watch thinking how he could, you know, do things differently, you know? Amazing. That's how, I That's how I am with these little clips we do. I never watch them. <laughs> well, you I'll certainly take give apart yourself my a break with these. Yeah, give yourself a break with these. But I, I remember Gene Hackman one time. I was scheduled to interview him the next day, but we were watching the screening in New York. And it was in a big theater. So there weren't very many people in it. There were just the press in it, but they couldn't get a screening room somewhere. So they actually did it in a real theater in New York. And there weren't that many people in the theater, but you know, I, I always like to sit towards the back of the theater. Anyway, and it was uh, Mississippi Burning was the movie. Oh, so I'm watching. Yeah, yeah, a really great movie. And I'm watching yeah. the movie, and all of a sudden, there's a shadow come in after the first five or ten minutes, and across the aisle from me, Gene Hackman sits in the back. He comes in, sits in the back. Now he stays there for about I don't know five or ten minutes, and then he gets up and he leaves. Right never to come back again. And the next day, I was scheduled to interview him around two o'clock in the afternoon or whatever. And I walked in and I, I said, you know, I was sitting across from you when you walked in the theater, walking. And I, I said, what's it like to see yourself, you know, 30 feet high? And, you know, and he said, uh, and I said, and you left early. You know, you didn't want to watch the, the, the rest of the movie. How come you want to do that? He said, because all I do is sit there and think, who, who in the hell would watch this bald, fat man do anything? <laughs> so actors are incredibly critical of, uh, of themselves uh, on screen. And so, of course, was Jose Ferrer. Anybody who's done anything, any amateur theater or anything, I mean, even, even when you do one or two performances, or, you know, you're always struck for, you know, a little while later when you're remembering the dialogue. Oh, why didn't I say it that way? Oh, I could have said, you, you really do kind of inhabit that role for, for a little while. So just think of, People who do uh, roles like Cyrano de Bergerac and uh, iconic roles and how they must feel. So that's why I only watched it once. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And you think about Brando. He never really went back to uh, the stage, did he? Uh, no. After he did Streetcar. He just went to I told you, you thought you thought unless you're yelling on stage, nobody thinks you're happy. Yeah, yeah. What he said. You know? Yeah, so he, he was one and done, as they say. He uh he was one and done, that's right. One and done. Now what uh what can you tell us about Gregory Peck? Because we're showing uh uh the snows of Kilimanjaro. Which snows is, of Kilimanjaro, uh, yes. Yeah, that's one of our Oscar nominated movies on our list uh, did, did you uh meet him oh yes yes i had a wonderful interview with uh, with gregory peck you know it's amazing that you know a lot of these things because a lot of the interviews i did were, were kind of film junkets i mean they were uh, films that had 30 40 people that were interviewing uh, stars at the same time and not always but sometimes and this was for old gringo it was for uh, his role in old uh, gringo that about 85, 86? Uh, yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood, right. And I was really looking forward to interviewing him because To Kill a Mockingbird is my favorite uh, film overall. And I thought, you know, he did a, a tremendous job in it, as you know, most everybody else does too. Uh, so you walk in the room normally, and these actors are, just, you know, they don't get up every time. They're, you know, they're, they've got their mics on, they've got the lights are in there, all the and so they don't really get up, you know, say hello to you, sit down and you shake hands with him, you sit down and say hello. I walked in that room with him and he got up, you know, he stood up and walked over to the door. You know, his mic's hanging on like this, right? Walks over the door and sticks his hand and says, hello, I'm Gregory Peck. You know, you say to yourself, 
I know that. <laughs> so anyway, we sat there, we started to talk. And we, I just had the greatest time with him. I went way over time with him. He kept, you know, he kept talking about all the movies that he was in. And he told me the greatest story about To Kill a Mockingbird. Harper Lee, who won the Pulitzer Prize, of course, for the book, never wanted him to play uh, the role of her father, Atticus Finch, in that movie, because she felt he didn't look like her father. And it just it, it wasn't right. So one day he's, he's doing the movie and he's uh, filming the scenes. One day he looks up and Harper Lee has been let on the set, which is something unusual. They normally don't let writers on the set. But uh, if you don't believe me, read William Goldman's Adventures in the Script Trade. They just don't like writers to be around when they're making the movie. But anyway, she's there and she's between you know, a couple of cameras. And uh, he's doing a, a particularly, he didn't tell me what the scene was, but uh, emotional scene. There's a few of them in that film. So he finishes the scene and he looks over and there's Harper Lee and she's crying. And he said to me, he said, Dana, you have to realize as an actor, there's nothing more gratifying than somebody who's that close to the material who is crying because of your performance. So I get up, I walked over to her, I threw my arms around her and I said, Harper, you have to tell me, I ought to tell you how much this really means to me that you're coming to see me do this movie and that I've touched you somehow. And she looked up at me and she said, you got a little pot belly just like my daddy. <laughs> he loved that, he loved that story. Uh, that meant the world to him. You got a little pot belly just like my daddy. <laughs> now, uh, did, did he did he have much to say about uh, Snows of Kilimanjaro or did he leave that one in the past? I don't think we ever talked about Snows of Kilimanjaro, but um, actually I think he did mention that, you know, most of the movies on his back. So, you know, it, you know, he didn't consider, well, I mean, most of the movies had flashbacks too. So there's a lot of acting that's done on his feet. But, you know, it's about a guy who, you know, through a, you know, he injures himself in the, uh, uh, in, in, near Kilimanjaro, and he's dying of gangrene as a result of pricking himself with a briar or something. And Susan Hayward's in that film, as a matter of fact, that she plays his, uh, his wife, Helen. And uh, anyway, I, I think that he just, you know, it wasn't one of his favorite movies because he was on his back uh, most of the time. Uh, but he was an amazing man. I mean, I, I, just a, a wonderful human being, you know. And it's funny about that, you know, so many of these guys, you know, like Jose Ferrer wasn't going to be an actor either. He, uh, Ferrer wasn't going to be an actor either. Uh, and he just kind of fell into it. And so did Gregory Pack. And the interesting thing about him was he hurt his back. Now, here's something he did tell me, too. Because there's a story that is going around that Gregory Peck, hurt, he was at Berkeley and he was on a rowing team at Berkeley and he hurt his back and when he was rowing on this rowing team and he couldn't do sports anymore. And so he wound up doing theater uh, at Berkeley, which got him interested in doing, um, you know, being an actor and going to acting schools. So uh, he told me that's not how it happened. And he said, he's been trying to debunk that for years and years when I was talking to him. He said, it really happened. This is unbelievable. It really happened when I studied with Martha Graham. Martha Graham taught him how to dance. And the contortions that he was doing would apparently wrenched his back uh, permanently. 
he had a chronic back condition as a result. But some studio executive, when they were writing his bio, felt that we better make it a little more manly than him dancing. You know, <laughs> not that it's not manly to dance. I'm just saying they, that was their perception. You know, he wanted literally to, uh, uh, you know, to make him look a little more masculine uh, because and make it happen in a way that you know happened because he was you know rolling and everything. So that's how that story got started. But he said it wasn't true. It was really dancing with Mark Graham. Um, but what happened as a result of that injury? He was 25 when the war started, 1941, at least when America got in World War II. He was 25. He was at prime age. And most actors, a lot older than he was in Hollywood, were going into the army. They were either going to be drafted in the army or they were enlisting. Oh, yeah. Most all the big names. Actors. Gabe, Gable, Jimmy big Stewart. Name. Well, yeah. most of them were, were enlisting and they weren't being drafted. They were actually right. enlisting. Uh, in there. And he was going to do that too, but the back injury prevented him from doing that. They didn't want it. So as a result of that, here's this really good looking guy with this great voice and, uh, and he can act. And so as a result of that, not that he didn't deserve it, you know, he was, he could held, hold his own with anybody, I think. Um, but he, uh, he wound up getting his career started perhaps earlier uh, because all the other guys were in the, in the war. Yeah, there, there were a uh, there were a few other guys like that. I think Van Johnson was another one who benefited from a lot of those big names were suddenly unavailable, and and Van Johnson was probably around the same age. Uh, another another guy in his yeah, probably. Early, early to mid twenties. Right. Uh, he he started getting roles that uh, he may not have gotten if uh, the bigger names were around. That's um, true. Yeah. Yep. And there was a lot of drama in Hollywood when the war ended because all of those big names were coming back and the jury was out. Are, are these guys right. like Gregory Peck and Van Johnson, are they going to keep working or are they going to just fall back in line while the big names take over where they left off? Well, they both kept working, didn't they? <laughs> and certainly well, Gregory Peck kept working. They, uh, yeah, and Van Johnson, we have one of his movies uh, during Oscar month, too. Um, we have a, I want to read just some of the movies that we have. They're available on the app. If they're not, if you don't see them on our schedule, they're also available on the app. We have Gulliver's Travels, uh, one of the great animated films, a, a real groundbreaker as far as animation. Um, we have A Star is Born, the original with uh, right. Frederick, Frederick March, uh, Janet Gaynor. Uh, we have a bunch of uh, uh, James Cagney movies that will uh, be playing on St. Patrick's Day uh, as well. Uh, we have uh, Royal Wedding with Fred Astaire. That's another one. Um, great uh, movie, by the way. It is. And, a great uh, movie. Sounder, of course. One, <laughs> a film detective right. favorite, um, and uh, the old the old Jungle Book with Sabu. That's one of my favorites. Wow! Uh, Penny Serenade. And Cary Grant, yes, that's a great one. Did did, did you deal much with uh, Cary Grant during your uh, junkets? Did, was he still working? No, much? a little before he... my time. Before I was interviewing movie stars, he was. Uh... Uh, he was not around. He would, you know, he retired fairly early anyway. 
mm-hmm. he didn't think it was early. I mean, even you know, he wanted to retire earlier than he actually did. But uh, he's my favorite actor of all time, and I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way about him. Just an extraordinary actor. I mean, Ian Fleming actually. That was his inspiration for Bond's character. You know that? I, I, I was thinking, that, yeah. Yeah, really. And they actually asked Cary Grant to be the first Bond in Dr. No. But by that time, he was well into his late 50s. And he said, no, nah, I think I'm too old for it. Which he uh, sometimes said yes and sometimes said no about, you know. Yeah, I also heard David Niven was, was uh, considered for a while. Yes, yes, he was. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I've, I've talked to a lot of people about Cary Grant who worked with Cary Grant, one of whom was Sophia Loren, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he pursued Sophia Loren. I mean, Sophia Loren, I think, was probably the only woman that ever turned him down. I mean, I think he had a relationship with her, but um, he was married. And, you know, Carlo Conti was eventually was she married right. uh, Carlo Conti right. eventually. But when they made houseboats, when Cary Grant was making houseboats with Sophia Loren, he wanted her you know, to continue to go out with him. They had had a relationship before. And she kept saying no. Now, she was only, I think when they made houseboat in her 20s, in her mid-20s. And he, again, was you know, 50 anyway, over 50, I think. But, um, and Carlo Ponte was no spring check either, by the way. He was in his late 40s, I guess. But anyway. Um, she claimed that she was in love with Carlo Ponte and told him that, and he wouldn't believe it. That's hard to believe that Cary Grant had to pursue anybody. But uh, she, they both ended up divorcing their wives at the same time. And both of them about the same time asked Sophia Loren to marry uh, them. And she chose Carlo Ponte instead of Cary Grant. But that, that's like the only woman I think that really ever, <laughs> ever got to him. But uh, yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? And then he met Diane Cannon, and Diane Cannon, all was, all was his, well. Had his first child with, at sixty-two. Wow, uh, with uh, Diane Cannon. Imagine that. That's pretty amazing. Got to give a guy a, you know, a well, hand for that. I think. Diane Diane Cannon had her charms. Had she already made uh, the movie with uh, Natalie Wood and uh, what was that? Bob oh. Carroll, Ted, and Alice. Right. Had she already made that movie? By the time they got married, that's a good question. (laughs) I think so, but uh, I don't really know to tell you the truth. I mean, it's uh, amazing. But I mean, arsenic and old lace, bringing up baby, uh, Philadelphia story, uh, notorious, the awful truth, to catch a thief, Mister Blandings builds his dream house. That is my favorite Cary Grant movie. I mean, I don't know. Most people say North by Northwest or Notorious, or one of the Hitchcock films. But I just love Mr. Blanding's Bill's History Month. I think it's just an amazing film. It's so funny. And uh, I always give that movie a copy. So to this day, I give a copy of that movie to any of my friends who are building houses. Oh, yeah. Because, of course, he, yeah, because he plays a Madison executive that leaves New York, his squalid little apartment in New York, uh, and uh, with his wife and two kids, and decides he's going to commute from Connecticut. So they buy a house. And eventually they have to tear the house down because the house gets condemned. They have to build a house. And there's all these problems with building the house. So I always give a copy of it because it's still relevant today. Believe me, just the figures change. But it's just amazing. At, uh, I just love that movie. Still do. Yeah, I, I, I was looking, I'm, looking for it the other day. 
I'm partial to uh, uh, His Girl Friday. His Girl Friday, the screwball classic that made newsrooms funny. This terrific film was loosely based on the popular Broadway hit, The Front Page, and is one of the most revered comedies in cinema history. <laughs> Uh, yeah, very funny movie. Yeah, he's the, the dialogue in that movie is just. Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, he he was uh, he was funny in a way that uh, a lot of actors they they can't be funny that way. Uh, he he was he, funny, sexy. Well, you know he he, funny, he, yeah. he was physical. He could do physical comedy if, if you needed him to do a pratfall or something. He could do. Oh, it. absolutely. Well, he, he was an he acrobat. Could, he, he could make a funny face if if you needed one, you know, he could do a yeah. little bit of everything, you know, and, and with dialogue, he was brilliant. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm fond of that one, His Girl Friday. I like that a lot. You know, we were talking First about up, Marlon, Marlon Brando a while ago, and one of our other Oscar movies that we're showing was nominated for uh, the musical score is The Man with the Golden Arm, which stars uh, Sinatra. And apparently... Brando really wanted that role. Uh, I, did you ever hear that story? I know that there was a, a there was kind of a healthy rivalry between Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando, which seems odd uh, on its surface, yeah. but there always was. Uh, they each one had digs to say about the other, but maybe that was at the at the bottom of that. I don't know. It it is interesting because uh, because also. For a while, Sinatra was being considered for the role of Terry Malloy in On the Waterfront. Right, that's true. Yes. You know, and and it's so funny that that Brando, the great actor, and Sinatra, who was a singer who did some acting, they were really right. kind of competing for the same roles for a few years. And to me, that's kind of interesting that Sinatra was held in that kind of esteem. Uh, where they thought, well, if we can't get Brando, we'll, we'll get Sinatra, you know. Well, I, I think Sinatra had proven that he would act by that point. Uh, well, he had won the but, Oscar, I think, for uh, yeah. From Here to Eternity. So he right. was he was not just doing song and dance routines with Gene Kelly. No, he had, and he had that, that Hoboken street, you know, street smarts that probably was, you know, made them think of him for on the waterfront. So I don't know. But uh, it is interesting. You don't really think of them as the same kind of actor do you i mean you, you don't you know? yeah it would, it would be like if robert de niro was competing with elvis for for roles or something you <laughs> right. know it's, it's right. kind of bizarre but uh brando really wanted that role that sinatra got in in uh, the man with the golden arm and now i had heard that uh the director otto preminger he wanted sinatra from the start and Sinatra was kind of uh, on the fence. He, he was thinking about it. Brando started calling Preminger, saying, I, I have to have that role. You, 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 I want it, you know. Um, and Preminger was, you know, stalling Brando, hoping Sinatra would, would come through. And finally, Sinatra got a hold of the script, because I think, I think maybe he'd read the book. Uh, and and had not yet seen the script. He was hemming and hawing, taking his time. Finally, when he got a hold of the script, he contacted Preminger and and said, I, "I'm going to do it." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do it. Nobody else can do it. I'm the guy, you know. And I I, I like that movie a lot too. We're showing that one. That one uh, uh, showing later in the month. These um, are good movies. 
Wow. Yeah, I had a chance to see it fairly recently. Uh, it's just got a little bit of everything. What, what I like about that one is, uh, even though the subject matter is very realistic with drug addiction, you know, guy coming out of rehab, trying to start his career in, in, in music, and it's very gritty. But when you look at the set, you know, it looks like a set that was built for, for a Gene Kelly movie. And you can almost picture Gene <laughs> Kelly sort of tap dancing around on this thing. It, uh, I've never heard anybody say that, but I guess you're right about that. Yeah, it, it, it has that very studio setting. It doesn't look like a realistic backdrop, but yet, right. you know, you, you see Frank Sinatra having his drug withdrawals and, and it's a very grueling kind of movie to sit through. Um, but uh, I like that one a lot. We'll, we'll be showing that later in the month. Let me just wrap up a few things. Uh, we're, we're also gonna be celebrating Carl Reiner's birthday. Uh, and we'll be showing uh, nice man. We'll be showing really a nice marathon, man. a marathon of Dick Van Dyke programs, mini marathon of the old Dick Van Dyke show in honor of uh, Carl Reiner. Did you meet Carl Reiner? Yes, yes, on a, a few occasions actually. I've interviewed him. Yeah, and and, and yeah, that must have been during the time he was working with Steve Martin. Yeah, it probably would have been. Yeah, yeah, that era. yeah, in the eighties, yeah. probably. Yeah. Yeah. What what uh, what do you recall about about Carl Reiner? Anything in particular? He, he, you know something. He, well, he was always trying to be funny. I mean, he always was funny. He always had a natural way about him, uh, you know, natural funniness. But uh, any question that you asked him, he tried to turn into a, a funny story or a joke or you know. And I, I just he was a very nice man, uh, very candid. It's funny when you when you a lot of actors when you're talking to them are trying to present themselves in a certain way. So when you're asking them questions, sometimes they're, they're cautious, they're stiff, they're, you know, they're, they're not very candid about what they're, but you got guys like Carl Reiner, who, you know, he's seen it all, done it all, that, you know, he has no problem with telling you who he is, or, and he doesn't make any pretense of who he is. And uh, it's always refreshing to actually talk to people like that. When, uh, when you were doing the movie Loft, were there ever any Oscar night episodes? And, and did you ever got? Did you guys ever do uh, an Oscar celebration? Anything? Every like year, that? every year we did Oscar night. Yeah, and, either that, and, and I, I did a lot of other shows that were you know, like Hersey's Hollywood. I right. we would do an Oscar week for Hersey's Hollywood as well. So we we always did, and you know, a lot of these movies that we're talking about today were actually on uh, Movie Law, and I've talked about on Movie Law. <laughs> Yeah, before. Yeah, I, I was wondering if maybe you, you they ever sent you to uh, the Oscars. Oh, I've been on the Oscars. I've been on the Oscars when you could stand on the red carpet. You can't do that anymore unless you are one of the major, I mean, you have to be one of the major network shows uh, in order to get on the red carpet now. Now they just put you in the back room so that, you know, when people win the Oscar, you know, mm. they come back in and it's a press conference. So you're sitting there. But I was, you know, in the early days, 
when you could actually stand on the red carpet. And they, you know, because you've interviewed a lot of these people, if they could see your face, that was one thing you had an advantage if you were a, a Hollywood reporter, as I was, that, you know, they could recognize you as opposed to just a reporter that a lot of stations would send to stand on the carpet to interview uh, Hollywood movie stars when they walked up the red carpet because they didn't know those people. Whereas they could recognize your face, you know, and you could actually yell out to them and get them to come over to you. So, and, uh, I mean, there was a day when they even walked up without their publicist and that never happens now. <laughs> but, mm. uh, you know, today in those days, they didn't even walk up with their publicist anywhere near them. So you could ask them anything. They would talk or anything. They looked great, you know. And, but then the Oscars in those days weren't that political either. They were not, you know, other than Marlon Brando, of course, uh, refusing his Oscar for The Godfather by, uh, you know, sending an, uh, an American Indian uh, to accept it on behalf of Native Americans, I should say. It, it always comes back to Marlon Brando. Well, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. March looks like it's going to be a great month. I'm Don Stradley. This is Dana Hersey. Dana, will you do me the honors and sign us out? Don Stradley, I'm Dana Hersey with the Film Loft. Good night. <laughs> Thank you. you. All right. All right, All right Dana. Always a, always a pleasure. All right. Have a good weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Yep. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.